whole thing is completely incomprehensible. This is all about making it a simpler formula and therefore encouraging parents to reach their own agreement. The whole system is built on this insistence that this child support agency, as it was back in April 93, is going to subsume within itself every single maintenance arrangement and then bit by bit it's done a vault fast. For most of us, child support is a dark art where really we're generally aware of it, but we don't have detailed knowledge. Fortunately, today we've got James Peary and Rachel Spicer here to illuminate it for us. James Peary is a director at Family Law in Partnership in London and a past winner of the John Cornwell Award. Rachel Spicer is a barrister at One Hair Court Chambers in London. She's an expert in child support and wrote the chapter on child support in Raiden and Jackson. And James, as a first question, real back to basic stuff, what actually is the formula that the CMS applies? So in the, ju the jurisdiction bit is the most complicated. You know, we know that we're not dealing with international families. Age and stage, we know we're not dealing with uh, kids at university. So it basically everybody falls out of the CMS on the 31st of August after A-levels, roughly speaking. Parentage, we're not dealing with stepkids. Shared care, when it's exactly equal. If care is exactly equal, then you're outside. Orders, if there's an order in place, then you can't go to the CMS unless the order is 12 months old. The separation. If your parents are still together, so you're actually at an interim hearing and they're still in the same home, arguably you could actually still tell the court you can apply because the CMS doesn't apply. Who's the applicant parent, which we've already touched on, which is broadly speaking, who has care to the greater extent, income, which is incredibly complex in its own rights about how whole income rules work. Pensions, quite obviously, the pension contributions come off income to work out what income number, gross income number, goes into the formula. Other kids, so if the paying parent has kids in their home, that's going to give them a discount. We all know that because that's been in the system for the last couple of iterations of the scheme. Due kids, you know what that means. And then we've got those um, 52 nights, 104 night cliff edges, which will reduce the level of the award by one seventh. Essentially, the variation scheme, which has existed in lots of different forms, and the most recent form has existed since 2012, with some further modifications in 2018, it does two things. It, can, it, it adjusts the weekly income figure, and it can adjust that upwards, and it can adjust that downwards. In terms of adjusting it upwards, that is known as bringing into account additional income, and the, this can be done where the non-resident parent has unearned income, which is income from dividends, income from land and property, um, other forms of miscellaneous income. Additional income can be brought into account where it is found that the non-resident parent has been diverting income. And that essentially means that you have to establish that the non-resident parent has control over the amount of income that they are receiving and is found to be reducing it unreasonably. And the third ground, which is a new ground since, which has been reintroduced since 2018, is to bring into account notional income from assets. That was abolished in 2012, but um, has now been reintroduced. The second way in which variations operate is to decrease the amount of income which will be brought into account. And that can be done. That's an application that will be made by a non-resident parent where they are bearing certain costs, for example, the cost of maintaining contact or the cost of servicing a debt from a relationship. I think it's, it's important to understand that when you make an application for a maintenance calculation, you apply in the first instance for a basic calculation. So at that stage, James says it's very complicated in relation to income. What the CMS will be looking at in the first instance is earned income. So it's income from employment, income from self-employment, pension income and certain taxable benefits. So those are the income, the forms of income that go into the calculation in the first instance. And then they are adjusted in the ways that James explained, um, reductions for pensions, shared care, etc. In terms of the, the variation um, scheme, what we're looking at is adjusting that gross income figure either upwards, so bringing into account the additional money that comes in from unearned income or 
a notional income from assets or we're looking at adjusting that gross income downwards because of the contact costs etc and so the important thing to bear in mind is that when you make an application for a cms in the first instance they'll only be doing the basic calculation you need to make an application for a variation so the applicant will need well, whether it's the parent with care or the non-resident parent will need to fill in an application form identifying the grounds that they seek to have the variation made on and what evidence they have in support of that application. I've tended to find that, that the applicant might well dive in for an upward variation on the grounds of assets or diversion, but that the respondent actually tends not to dive in to reduce the sums sometimes on the basis of school fees, which is always a bit embarrassing if we've failed to take account of that. Because they don't, I mean, that was one of the interesting changes between the two schemes is that you can get a discount for, you know, overnight stays, but you can also get a discount for the costs of that. And if you dive into the regulations, we know that we're allowed to get the costs of the bridge toll, aren't we? It's quite specific about what you can bring into account in the usual balmy way, which is, I guess, the other bit which is fascinating about all of this, that it was supposed to be a lawyer-free environment because it's so simple to operate, and yet it's a complete freaking labyrinth. I mean, I started this in 1991, and I'm still going, oh my God, I literally never saw that. I I think that's completely right, because I think one of the um, things that the Parliament has been very clear about throughout, and more clear about, when the 2012 regulations came into force was that this is all about making it a simpler formula and therefore encouraging parents to reach their own agreements as to child maintenance. And the idea is that you first of all go to child maintenance options and you are advised what the likely calculation would be with a view to then reaching an agreement with your, your ex-partner and not actually necessarily needing the CMS to become involved at all. Yes. And, and isn't that a sort of a great point that, that in fact, bit by bit, I think the system's imploding. You're doing way more tribunal work than me. I mean, I'm finding three years to a tribunal decision, not unusual. And so we think of child support as this sort of funny little thing off the edge of our financial remedy cases or our Schedule 1 cases. But it actually, it's a massive litigation after party. And, and I think one of the problems is that the CMS and the tribunal tried to pursue this holy grail of the one fixed number that actually is the answer to the formula overlay to these circumstances. And of course, they're looking back, you know, three years, factor in that every year the CMS is going to try and review the numbers. And so by the time we get to our appeal, we've got at least two interim variation of the numbers I mean the whole thing is completely (laughs) incomprehensible so in terms of don't want to touch it with a barge pole reach your own agreements you can understand why and that's even before you get to enforcement where we all know that the CMS isn't really doing its job in enforcing because every time it gets a simple enough system to operate I think that the DWP takes out the frontline workers so that it's not actually got the capacity to do this stuff. So uh, you you told us initially that our clients apply for a basic assessment and they get that their number. If we're looking at the person with care, you said they can then go and apply back for a fresh assessment. And then you talked about they need to put their evidence together for that. So what evidence would they be looking for I mean it presumably it must be quite hard for them to have evidence in respect of their ex-partner's finances. Well I think there's a probably helpful to distinguish between the different heads of variation um so the first one to say the first head which is the easiest one is unearned income because if you make an application for a variation on the basis of of your ex-partner having unearned income what the CMS will do is that they will go to HMRC and they will get the data directly from HMRC regard from your self most recent self-assessment tax return so they will see the figure there for your profit from rental properties or for your dividends so in that respect so that application is quite straightforward you just need really need to flag up there are there is dividend income here there is rental income now that figure may become controversial but in terms of of making the case it's quite straightforward I think then in terms of asset in most cases you'd imagine that the parent would care would have some idea of what assets uh, the the non-resident parent holds although not in every case remember that we can't use the information from our financial remedy schedule one case we can't just produce that to the cms yes we can produce it once we get to an appeal but we actually need the court's permission 
to jump in and produce the asset schedule or the form e document or the income tax returns that have been produced you can't just grab those and and send them into the cms and use that as the basis for your appeal and interestingly the standard orders don't actually cover you we think they do we think we just kind of grab paragraph 90 as it happened because i just looked it up and we're good now look at it read it carefully all that enables you to do is to produce the order it doesn't give you permission to produce all of the back information i mean again what we're talking about at this stage anita is, is your initial application to the cms so yes what you're considering what a parent is considering is information which is going to be provided to a caseworker at this stage and as james says that the client has to be careful at that point um that they are they provide only information which is within their knowledge rather than the form e or the tax return which has been disclosed within the financial remedy proceedings i think by far the harder one really to deal with is, is diversion of income. So a, a, a typical case that the CMS might, in which the CMS might consider making a variation on the grounds of diversion of income is where a non-resident parent is not paying themselves as much in by way of dividend as they might be able to having regard to the profits within their a company which they control. And in order to make a case good on that, well, of course, you may be able to rely upon certain publicly available evidence from company's house, but there you are likely to start to get into difficulties in terms of needing to have more financial information, the sort of which would be disclosed within financial remedy proceedings. Um, but you know, a, a lot of our clients won't, won't be within financial remedy proceedings, so they will have to be looking for information that they can find from company's house and other publicly available information, and, and, and information that's within their own knowledge. Uh, and what the CMS will do then is that they will they will write to the other parents. So either way, um, they will then write to, to the respondent to the variation application and they will say, your ex-partner has said you have these assets, you're doing this with your company, please can you provide us with this information? So they will then ask for that, ask for further information from the non-resident parent. Now they may just ignore that letter and chuck it in the bin. You know, I think picking up on James's point about the length of time it takes to, to process things, I think that one of the real difficulties with the variation scheme is that it is very complicated. Complicated in terms of, of the, the legal side of things, the, re- the way the regulations work, and complicated in terms of the financial side of things, because you're delving into quite complicated accountants, points of accountancy. And those types of applications are in reality much better dealt with by a first tier tribunal. But of course, in order to get to the first tier tribunal, you need to make your application to the CMS, you need to have that, assume that's rejected, and you then need to make your appeal. And then you get drawn into this uh, long process. But, but when you're in the appeal system, you've then got you've then got the ability to rely upon any information that you had, had disclosed within the financial remedy proceedings and indeed. The, the tribunal can make directions at that point as well. Where do we point our clients towards? So, so first they have to look up CM options and the rules are that CM options is desperately trying to stop you from going anywhere near the CMS. That's their brief, which yeah. is pretty bizarre. I mean, just pausing there, isn't it interesting that the whole system was built on this insistence that this child support agency, as it was back in April 93 when it opened its doors, is going to subsume within itself every single maintenance arrangement on the planet, it thought. And then bit by bit, it's done a vault fast. Its endeavour now is to do have no work at all, which is bonkers. So we go to CM options, and if we insist on going to the CMS, they're not allowed to stop us. We then go to the CMS with our little voucher saying we've been to CM options. And actually, that initial stage is, I reckon, pretty quick. I reckon within eight weeks, you're going to have your basic assessment in place but it is truly basic it's simply going to be cms ringing up their mates at the hmrc getting the number for earned income plugging it into a computer and putting out a sort of a a ranging shot and actually it's only at that point that the putative respondent is going to be contacted who's going to talk about other kids in their home or shared care arrangements or that they're not my kids at all if your applicant is on the ball they will have already made their application for variation in complex situations. They're going to do that right at the beginning. But when we get that final assessment, I I think the bit that so many um, advisors, in my view, get wrong is they go on arguing with the CMS and they keep on explaining why the CMS is wrong. 
And what happens is your deadline, and yes, oh my goodness, in this bit of family law, you do have deadlines. Your 28-day or one-month deadline floats by. So what I would say is be really careful about that. Put in your appeals really on, really early on. And of course, at this point, we're going to be appealing possibly against the assessment, but we may be appealing against the variation. And you've got to really keep your head in gear about which silo you're in. And this is the point where it starts turning into a three-year grind through the process. I'm not saying the CMS is ridiculous and slow in terms of getting that first set of numbers out. I think what we're saying is that with people with any level of complexity, when you're going to need to make an application, that's when it gets grisly. My experience is that the CMS is quite lazy. If, if you're trying to make an application on a diversion ground, almost always the CMS will reject it and you're only going to get your higher level assessment as the applicant by pursuing your appeal. If you're saying it's shared care, but the other parent has child benefit, I reckon that the CMS is almost always going to say, well, the other parents got child benefit and therefore there's no shared care and they're the applicant parent and get on and pay up. And of course, what we all know is that if you don't pay up, you're going to start having a pretty grisly level of uh, fine imposed on you, which is the 20% handling fee for being within the uh, pay and collect system. So I'd say get out of that. You know, if you're told to pay, you need to get on and pay immediately. I can see you're desperate to jump in to correct me. No, no, I'm just going to take things back, back to take back a step further. back. In terms of, um, again, in terms of the process, you, as you say, you'll get the you'll get the decision from, and I think in terms of the timelines and, and when things happen and when it may be worth doing things. So you get you get your decision and then you have a month from the date that the CMS have, have, have given. It's a letter and it will say, decision on it and then it will have a couple of pages explaining about appeal rights and so that is an important deadline that's first point maybe that clients will come to to see solicitors because at that point so when you've got your decision you then have a month to apply for a mandatory reconsideration and what that essentially means is that the cms are invited forced required to look at their decision again and so that's the point at which in some cases, you know, it really can be worth putting in a bit more evidence, having a bit of argument with the CMS, writing a sort of, um, James writes uh, brilliantly clear letters telling the CMS exactly how they need to, <laughs> to do their calculation and what they haven't done. And, and, and James, I mean, in my experience, I would say that I think it can be worth arguing the shared care point of that because I think the, the CMS caseworkers are they're quite good at dealing with schedules of, of dates you know when you produce the calendar and say this is when the child's been with me this is when the child has been with them that's the sort of thing without sounding patronizing that I think that the CMS can do change their mind about having looked at, at schedules and competing evidence but I, I agree with you James that, that there is a tendency sometimes on, on a more complicated accountancy issues, which arises in a diversion of income, that the CMS will appear, at least to us, to be doing not very much and, and won't change their decision. And then again, coming back to the process, what you do, you have, they will then give the answer that they will give you, they will tell you whether they're going to review their decision, response to your request for a mandatory reconsideration or not. And if they say no, you then have a month from that to appeal to a first tier tribunal. And the first tier tribunal essentially come in and they stand in the shoes of the CMS. They can remake decisions of fact, as, as well as looking at, at the law. It's a you know, it, it's a process that we're much more familiar with. You know, the directions are given, are referred to, they will hear evidence to make a decision. But that's the process that, as James says, can take an awfully long time to, to go through. At which stage, which of those two stages, Rachel, is it that that the that they can go beyond behind the figures in the tax return? Is it at both those stages? Look at the question in, in respect of the two different aspects of the calculation. So the in terms of the basic calculation, so looking at earned income from employment or from self-employment as well as pension income, the default position is that the CMS will look at historic income as a historic income figure and that is the figure from the most recent tax return which is provided to them by hmrc and they type in a request and the number comes back jumping in but, which is why in our financial remedy cases you should always 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 get the last tax return because what you may find is one hasn't been put in for two or three years 
and then the CMS is going to go back three years ago. So you were looking at the number on the top of the asset schedule for income, thinking, oh, well, we, that's fine as a number, but actually then you're caught up with the with the old historic data. They are able to, the CMS are able to use the last tax return that's, that's provided to them, and the information from the last tax return held by HMRC, but it has to be within a period of six years. In terms of that, Simon, in answer to your question, that there is no scope to go behind the historic in, in relation to historic income, there is no longer a scope to challenge that. You, you can't have the argument with CMS. You might be able to have an argument with HMRC. The CMS will use the HMRC data if it's been provided to subject to, to one possible caveat. What you might be able to do is to say, well, what I've seen happen a lot is that they are they put in the request and they come back with a figure and it's wrong or it's out of date or a more recent tax return has been filed or is on the system so and um, certainly there's an upper tribunal case which has said it's it's fine to put in another for another request to be put in it, it may be that you're stuck with that figure for the year in which the assessment is made but the assessment is updated the basic calculation is updated annually so if another tax you know, there's a, a more recent tax return it may be that that will be taken into account the following year what can be done so in terms of de departing from the historic figure income figure is that the cms are entitled to use current income which is a different way of, of, of analyzing the same income and they're but they're only allowed to do that in certain circumstances which is where they don't have any historic income data or where current income is different from historic income by more than 25 percent. so this is often a way in which a non-resident parent, but I think it, doesn't, it seems to me it can be a route available for a, a resident parent with care as well as a non-resident parent, but it's most frequently used by non-resident parents who say, well, yes, that's what I earned when I produced my, prepared my last tax return, but in fact, my business has fallen apart or I've lost my job. And then in, in those circumstances, if, you can, if they can provide evidence, which normally in the form of a, a letter from an accountant so to show that the income has changed by more than 25%, the CMS are entitled to use that. If you have a taxi driver earning 10 grand and you know jolly well that they earn 20 grand, could you deal with that on a current income basis? Could you say, well, actually, CMS, I want you to investigate their income because it's not 10, so therefore it must have changed by more than 25%. Or do you say, this is a diversion that they are sort of gathering their inf their uh, income in a way which is minimising child support, or do you, ha-ha, go to the HMRC and try and get them to carry out an accurate assessment of this taxi driver's income? I think the most important point to make is that the CMS are all about keeping this as straightforward and as administratively simple for them as they possibly can. The reason they've made these changes is so that they don't have to investigate anybody's income, that they don't have to go through the data and, and pull this all together. And in, and in the few situations where the rules appear to allow them to do that, I, my experience, I think those are being sort of shut down because the, the, the DWP's position is this is not what CMS caseworkers should be doing. Uh, that is ultimately a job for HMRC if there is a problem. And so I think... The first point I make, James, is I, I think you're likely to find quite a lot of resistance if you're the parent with care in that sort of situation in terms of taking on the CMS, certainly taking on the CMS at the first instance and quite possibly even at an a, a appeal stage, because I think you know, the, the starting point and, and the Secretary of State's position is likely to be our job is, is not to uh, investigate. Uh, to saying that, I mean, the, the, saying that it Theoretically, it might be possible if there is evidence of the current income figure being different from the figure in the tax return. But again, I think that the CMS are going to need quite clear evidence before they are going to, to go down that route. Well, one of the classics, I, I think, one of the, the, the situations that frequently arises is that the non-resident parent diverts his income into his new partner or new wife's name or uh, transfers his business into her name so that the income continues to come in but appears on her tax return rather than his tax return. Is there any way that the CMS can deal with that sort of situation? 
Yes, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, that, that is a classic case um, where the diversion of income ground of variation is intended to apply so as to enable the CMS to bring back into account that reduction in income. So if, if the non-resident parent has effectively reduced his own income by £20,000 per year because of the amount that he has paid to his new partner as a, a nominal salary, or in fact, in terms of the amount that he has spent on his new Tesla, key part of his business. And, and so the, the variation regulation allows the CMS to, to look at that reduction and say, yeah, that's, that's 20,000 you've reduced your income by, and we can add that back in. So absolutely, in terms of that being the basis of a claim, it's a very strong basis of a claim. The difficulty may be, my major caution is always how long it takes to get that, it what sort of length of process you're going to be stuck in, in order to, to get that brought properly into account in terms of, of the um, overall calculation. I think that's another little question I've got coming out of, of what you're saying. And so we, we know there's this annual assessment once you're in the CMS regime, they, they go back and they recalculate each year. If you succeed in year one in a diversion of income claim, for instance, and then, and that probably takes you most of year one to, to get to that point. And then year two comes around, or exactly, or, or year three comes around, and the, the, next tax, the next tax return is filed. Do you go all the way back to the beginning, or do you keep the, um, the increase that you won through hard-earned tribunal in year one? The increase stays in relation to diversion of income. That sticks because there's not two separate calculations. There's one calculation with this additional level of income that's brought, brought into account. And, and yes, that if, if the tribunal makes a finding and, and says actually he could have paid he could have paid himself an extra fifty thousand pounds worth of dividend, you're stuck with that. Now, and that means that I mean this is where it does start to get super complex because what you need to think if you're the what you need to think if you're the non-resident parent is if, in fact, if you think you're going to be clobbered with a, a diversion of income, an adverse finding about potential dividends in year one, as the non-resident parent, what you need to be thinking about is I need to have put in my appeal or, or sort of laid the groundwork in terms of being able to challenge the position for year two, if in fact the, the, the numbers are going to be looking look very different in year two and year three. Um, and that's where it starts to really go around in circles and make everyone's head hurt because everybody needs to appeal against each yeah. decision yeah. every time one pops up. For and every time there's a change of circumstance, you need to apply for supersession, which is this idea about reviewing it because there's a significant change of circumstances. And you can imagine what a tangle that creates because the, the tribunal isn't knocking out these decisions and is taking so long to knock them out. There's a sort of almost a snowball of complaints and appeals and supersessions and stuff. Uh, and that's even before we get into the complaint system and all that might be going on in there. And it, it's all accumulating. And, uh, you know, we have to hold in mind that uh, the tribunal is really often just operating as supervisory jurisdiction. So it's deciding, did the officer get this bit wrong? It isn't like it is in court where they bring everything together into one moment and make sense of it and deal with the arrears and deal with the future and deal with it all. So you, I think it's incredibly complicated and the only way I can do it is by charting out all the decisions that are made, being clear about which ones we're appealing, which ones we've missed our dates to appeal. There's a 13 month deadline when you kind of can't do it anymore and trying to hold on to all of those elements and bringing it all together. Unearned income. So actual dividends paid, actual rental income is updated annually. So once you've got your unearned income into the system, the CMS will go back to HMRC on an annual basis. So that side of things can be kept up to date. But the, the, the trickiest is the diversion of income. But, but what's messy, though, is so I've decided to sort of come clean or start pulling out realistic levels of income out of my company. So my income in year two goes up quite a bit, 
But actually what you've explained to us is that diversion element is still coming along. So my 50K diversion is still on top of it. And if I've not managed to apply for a supersession of that, i.e. please try and be all now recognise that my income's gone up and therefore my diversion should be squeezed down because actually I'm still earning the same, um, mayhem. Can we just pull that little bit apart? So the other classic that we hear about is of course people having small um, limited companies where the money is being kept in the company and they're only paying small amounts out to to themselves and therefore the child support levels are low. So if you are the parent with care and you believe that is happening, what is it the tribunal can do about that in respect of the company? It's another version of diversion. So when diversion was invented, it was intended for the window cleaner who employs his girlfriend and then pays a five grand a year for not doing very much. But actually, what what I think it was probably a Rachel Spicer case, it usually is, um, what that expanded into was um, you can divert by effectively diverting the resources of the company into shareholders' funds, and that too will count. And I find quite a lot of business owners having a bit of a of fisticuffs with the, metaphorically, with the financially qualified member, because the FQM is basically a, an accountant who's brought into the tribunal to help the tribunal chair reach a decision. Why is it a tribunal when there are only two of them? No idea. Still a tribunal if there's only one of them. And the financially qualified member is saying, well, I think realistically you should be doing this. And the, and the business owner is saying, well, I, I can't afford to do that. You know, I actually need to leave money in the company for the bad times. And the FQM says, well, you know, this is where I am. And Rachel's, uh, I think, I don't know if it was one of her cases, but, you know, there is this case where the, the business owner is saying, well, look, that's my decision. You can't get behind it. And the um, upper tribunal said, I think I can, actually. But, but it's one of the important points that I, I keep coming to is that the paying parent may say, look, it's ridiculous or 8% is ridiculous or all these other things that are ridiculous. But actually, all that it's doing is it's, is it's a, a notional concept of wealth that results in a level of payment that you must make. So the, the FQM isn't saying to the business owner, you have to pull out this much money. It just says, I'm going to operate on the basis that you are. And therefore, the number is X. How you deal with that is up to you. So so the ways that non-resident parents, if you like, are paying lower amounts than they should is um, either by diverting income, either into partners or businesses. Is there any other issues in respect of how they're coming up with low, uh, uh, low assessments? I think there's a the, the classic case, which is always problematic in relation to the way in which self-employed earners calculate their accounts. And I and I this goes back to, to what I, the, the taxi driver point that J- James was making, because at the end of the day, the CMS are looking at the HMRC data. A non-resident parent with care may well say, well, look, they're offsetting all sorts of personal expenditure against these accounts. There's money you're not seeing, there's there's costs which shouldn't be in there. I mean, that's been problematic since the outset, for right or wrong, self-employed earners get quite a hard press in respect of that. You know, I, I think we've reached a point where the CMS are just trying, you know, their, their aim is to try and get some, you know, they want to get maintenance flowing through the system. The government's been quite clear that their job is not to be, start investigating the way in which every non-resident parent presents their income another area where problems have arisen is in relation to pension payments into pension funds because the regulations in relation to the basic calculation provide that the CMS will take into account the non-resident parents gross weekly income less the amount they contribute to their pensions and in the current iteration of the regulations that is uncapped so in the first instance a non-resident parent may legitimately reduce their income substantially the, the, the gross weekly income that's taken into account substantially by by putting large chunks into a pension fund the only remedy really in relation to that is again I and mean, we're coming back to, to 
to this thorny issue of diversion of income, because that is the remedy for a parent with care who says, look, you know, his, his gross income from this company ought to be in the region of 100,000, but he's putting 50,000 a year into his pension. And he never did that before. And he's clearly only doing it now so as to, to minimise the amount I, I need for child support. But it, it doesn't even have to be made. Yeah, the pension suddenly shoots up on, on separation. It happens a lot. And yeah, the only remedy, unfortunately, for the parent with care at that point is to make this make an application for a variation to say there has been a reduction that he used to make contributions of 20,000. Now he's making contributions of 50,000. We need to add back that 30,000. That's the reduction, which is unreasonable because we look at it in the context. Reasonableness is looked at in the context of the child support scheme as a whole and the importance of maintaining, providing maintenance for children during their minority. So again, classic case, really strong case there in that sort of scenario, but for a diversion of income, if you can get through the process before the children have got married and had their own children. But so I, I think those are, those are the, the, the problem areas. I'd sort of throw in two more, really, which is complexity and bureaucracy. I, I think the reason why proper payments aren't made is that the system is just overwhelming. You know, it goes too slowly. Even when you get the money at the end, it probably won't be paid. And actually trying to argue out this case is a minefield. And either you pay good money to get your professional advice on track from a solicitor or direct access barrister or barrister and solicitor but it's it's an expensive proposition and you know you can't actually see the funds coming through at the end and really what it it underpins is I think this idea of litigation after party that everyone is so upset that it, it feels as if this system is making judgments about their characters And I have myriad calls with people wanting to fight cases. And I'm going, and do you know what difference this is going to make in the year? And they go, I haven't got a clue. I say, okay, well, it's about 500 quid in a year. Because many of these tweaks at the top line have minute changes at the bottom. It's quite easy for another £1,000, it appears, at the top to result in a difference of 50 quid at the bottom. Because... The number that goes in then goes through all those steps. And by the time you've applied all the percentages and the discounts for the overnight stays and the discounts for the children in your home, it's making no difference at all. So one of the my gripes really about the system is that it never really joined up with the family. You know, how great if we had a child support system that was authentically about how to create better futures for this family. You know, why is it not talking first about parenting and about how kids need two parents where it's safe and if it was doing that and that financial provision was really just one aspect of that then I wonder if we would so reduce the burdens of the CMS that it can't cope with. Huge irony is certainly in my experience the only non-resident parents who can afford the legal advice to go jump through the hoops that you're talking about are the ones who have funnily enough significant income or assets of their own and actually for the people for whom child maintenance is a major component of what they need to live off these remedies have to be self-help and are incredibly hard to access. Am I right? Are there any situations in which legal aid is available to deal with tribunal cases? Making, but I'm going to say yes because it was a case that Rachel did called Dixon and Rennie. But well, that's not, not legal Dixon. aid; it's, it's legal funding. Exactly. So you, you can go to um, the court on a Schedule One basis to ask for, in effect, a Reuben order or a legal fees provision order. It's possible to ask for funding for the tribunal. Uh, that's the top up territory for that one. No, you don't, because I think the court has got jurisdiction and, and it wasn't in that case I mean that was the dispute in that case the court's got the jurisdiction to make a lump sum order for for legal fees in the same way as it would do in, a, in a, any other schedule one application it can deal with legal funding by way of a capital payment I mean uh, uh, you know, it seems to me I mean we, the question was um James made the point earlier about um, not seeing many applications by non-resident parents about contact costs and, and those sorts of small things. And I think I mean, the reality is that those mean an awful lot to a lot of people, that, that those small adjustments, but not generally to the sort of people that can afford 
legal advice to, to, to go through these processes. So I think there are routes out there, but they, they just become wholly disproportionate to pursue if, if you're into the realms of, of instructing solicitors, let alone barristers and solicitors. I mean, my experience is where the, the battleground comes, uh, rightly or wrongly, is, is over whether we're going to push up into top up territory or not because we I see quite a lot of, of cases where parents with considerable wealth who have nonetheless succeeded in keeping their accessible income for child support purposes below the 156,000 pound level so squarely within the CMS jurisdiction um, and so thus avoiding top up or, or more sort of swinging orders for child maintenance, which might more realistically reflect, arguably, the full scale of their resource. Yeah, and, and factoring in that it then takes three years to actually, as the applicant, fight through your case to get that into the top up territory. And then you can turn to the court to get your schedule one top up order. Brilliant. But actually backdate it to the date of your application, usually, and no further. Those three years, you are absolutely in the wilderness, unless you can go under the Family Law Act. So I've just discovered this, you know, is it 30 years on? Well spotted, James, kind of really on the ball. But I, I, I think you are, you know, I mean, we all know the rules, don't we, that Phillips and Pease says you can't go through the back door to get, you know, maintenance from the court, however bonkers the CMS is. Right, we know that. And you can't get, again, get a lump sum instead and all the rest of it. But I think that um, you possibly are able to get some sort of provision, provided the court is exercising that provision under the Family Law Act. If you are the applicant, you know, with two young kids, no resources, utterly dependent on provision from the respondent who's got kind of a complex situation, I think you have to stay put in the house even if it's quite a sort of a difficult situation and you have to try and make an application under the Family Law Act, because otherwise you step out, now you can make your application to CMS, brilliant, you're going to get 10,000 quid, which just isn't going to scratch the surface. And there is no way around that. I don't know what on earth you do. Sorry, James, so you're talking about the Family Law Act orders ancillary to an occupation order for payment of rent or mortgage payments? Yes, I mean, and I think we need to look at whether you have to get the occupation order for the court to be able to exercise those. I mean, I, th I think it's quite a narrow gateway. I think we need to be quite careful, and I've not heard of anybody doing it yet. But I think that's about the only place. I also found a possibility of getting some sort of order under Talata, but that's pretty limited, and I don't think it works because I, you know, once you kind of delve into the detailed rules, I think it's it's too narrow to actually work. So it's not ideal, but I think that's the only route that the applicant in that difficult scenario of needing out of the relationship and not having the funds to be able to make the jump can do. And apart from that, they're sort of dependent on their own resources. Pretty difficult when you've got two, you know, you've got twins aged six months or family support. I think at some point we need to go around and, and look at top-up orders. Before we do that, I'm conscious that for every resident parent who feels that the CMS assessment is far too low and unrealistic. There's usually a non-resident parent who feels that the CMS assessment was brutally unfair and unaffordable. If you find yourself in that position, you have the same remedies that we've already talked about, potentially. But there are other factors that you need to think about and make sure the CMS is taken into account, aren't there? So you need to be thinking about the shared care arrangements for your children of that relationship, but also the financial support that you give to other children of your family. Does one of you want to go through what a person in that position ought to make sure has been covered in the CMS assessment? James touched upon it when, when he in his introduction. I and mean, I think the first thing to say is that, of course, I suppose the advantage, they may not see it, the non-resident parent has, in feeling that he or she has been subject to a, an unfairly high assessment is of course they do have the raw data the, the assessment is based on their income and assets so they will have the opportunity to 
say, and it may not come on stream straight away, but to say, look, my income has changed. Here's the evidence that this is what's happening now. They can do that in terms of, you know, that their concerns are about the top line figure and there has been a genuine change. They can they can um, provide the CMS with evidence of that. But then moving through, the next thing is, of course, the, the pension payments um, and they can identify those and make sure those have been identified um, to the CMS. Um, the next thing to think about is any children that are living in their household at the moment. And so there will be a, an adjustment to the calculation to take account of, of, of those children. Um, and then, of course, the shared care provisions and uh, which provide regulations which provide for a sliding scale of deductions depending upon the level of nights which a child, a qualifying child is spending in the care of the non-resident parents. And what we haven't talked about at all yet is the scenario, the increasingly common scenario, where actually the, the level of nights is, is equal or nearly equal because going right back to the, the top of the process, of course, the first thing that a a putative non-resident parent will be thinking at the outset is, well, am, do I qualify as a non-resident parent? Am I providing care for this child to a lesser degree than, let's say, the, the mother or the, the, the applicant in that scenario? And I, I think a, a point that you know I have sort of emphasised and advice I've given is it, it, it isn't actually necessary but for that purpose is to establish an equal number of nights. It can be a slightly unequal number of nights if you can establish that um, the parenting responsibilities the responsibility for day-to-day -day care of those children is shared equally which is ordinarily the intention behind most we call equal shared care orders even if there's sort of you know slightly unequal numbers in of, of care of nights over the summer holiday so I mean that's you know, again, something to, to review may lead to further problems in the court arena. And we may come on to that in a moment for fear of upsetting the apple cart or causing difficulty. They don't update if, if the nights change or if there's a, have a new baby that's born, you know, keeping the CMS up to date, making these applications for supersessions, even if they aren't acted upon immediately. It's a, it's a question of logging this information with the CMS with the words application or change of circumstance application for, for supersession keeping that on record so that the calculation will stay hopefully eventually um in line with with that parent's circumstances worth saying no backdating you can't turn up and say a year ago this happened and expect yeah. them to change the numbers historically i mean I, and i i wouldn't mind just rowing slightly further upstream even from that point which is to talk about, you know, out of court or away from agency system solutions. So, I mean, my, it, you know, we're fascinated by this stuff, aren't we? we? We're lawyers, we love reading regulations and interpreting them, and it's all kind of really wonderful stuff. But actually, in terms of families, I'd much rather they were sitting down and working out what works for them. And that would encompass how we're going to parent our kids together hopefully, um, you know, how do we share time and then structuring around, well, so what's the financial thing look, need to look like for this to work? I mean, the, the CMS is a pretty, you know, we think of the court as a low-hanging safety net. CMS is a seriously low-hanging safety net. You know, you drop into that from your trapeze and you're quite likely to bounce on the floor as well because it's a pretty uncomfortable fall. So um, we would always be saying, you know, try and sit down and find solutions rather than rely on these schemes. And I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've never done it. Um, the opportunity's not come up, but you know how much better it would be if rather than plow into these tit for tat applications, you know, the, as solicitors, we had a, a strong enough relationship to talk through, find where we're stuck, and then sit down in a joint conference with Rachel and be led through okay, well, maybe this is what the solution looks like. So quite often, I think we can, we can get most of the way there with our arch. We can agree a lot of the provisions, but we're stuck on a couple of last items. And rather than the whole arch fall down, if we were coming in for a joint conference, so 
both parties in the room, no one's allowed to leave, both parties, both solicitors in the room, and we simply talk it through in a kind of constructive, positive way. I mean, how much better, how much cheaper this is for the family? Isn't the problem with that, and also the problem with the really well-constructed court um, order for child maintenance, the 12-month rule, which just means that everybody is in fear of, it, of their carefully constructed arrangement being blown out of the water by an application for a CMS assessment. And even if in your heart of hearts, you want to trust the other parent, that is hanging that is hanging there in the background. I mean, I, I probably have a different view from James. Well, I may have a different view from James on that. I, I'm not so certain that the problem, the significance of the 12 month rule is that you, you know, when you're reaching this carefully constructed, you can't be blind to what the CMS is going to do. I mean, it, 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 and that's why understanding how these regulations work, understanding what the pitfalls are, understanding that you know, where the adjustments were made, I think is critical when you have this, this discussion because it, it's, it's there and you know, it, it's upset so many we all know upset so many cases when this happens further on down the line and they you know they go oh my goodness I've finished two years worth of litigation in the family courts only then to start another eight years in the CMS tribunals it's it's complete hell so I think in my opinion the view is not so much the the difficulty with with family-based arrangements and court orders is, is the way in which you vary that carefully constructed agreement because the one of the advantages of the CMS in a straightforward case is that they do review the calculation for free every year. Um, and, and if you're dealing with a, a young child, that can be incredibly beneficial. I mean, it may not be the full picture. It may not take into account assets, but ultimately you've got the CMS keeping track of the non-resident parent's income for what may be 10, 12 years, and you're not having to spend any money on solicitors at, at all. Um, so, so that's very positive. And I think the disadvantage with sorting out fam with dealing with it outside of the CMS and trying to keep it outside the CMS is, is what is how you deal with with varying that because you see lots of and this maybe comes as an issue top up as well it's that it, you can spend a lot of money coming up with the answer but not all orders provide for workable arrangements to, to deal with variations to that order and then that can be what triggers again and you know, it, it's almost always disproportionate to have a variation application to, to deal with changes in in circumstances but you can be absolutely sure that changes in circumstances will happen and will need to be tackled and so I mean, my view is that that when you're looking at things and trying to keep it away from cms it, we need a bit more focus on what happens when things change and how that will be dealt with what the exchange of information will be provided for and as say the you know the cms is useful in the background in that respect. So seeing as top-up orders have um, come up, can we ask the two of you to walk us through what you should be doing if you're in top-up territory? So if you believe you're in top-up territory, should you always be making an application to the CMS at the outset? Yes, um, I think it is a pretty straightforward answer to that. The case of, of Dixon and Rennie, which I dealt with, um, and indeed other cases, have made it very clear that it is for the CMS to determine that a case is in maximum, there is a maximum assessment that we're in top-up territory. They need to make that finding. They need to have assessed a, a non-resident parent as having a gross income in excess of £3,000 per week. Is that right? You need their assessment, even if the other side concede that, even if it's obvious from the tax return and what have you? Well, the difficulty with the other side conceding it is that they might stop conceding it. And uh, if they produce evidence the night before the tribunal to say, well, to say I withdraw the concession and, you know, here, here we go, you know, here's evidence that actually I'm earning £154,000 rather than £158,000 per annum. If, if that happens on the eve of a trial, you're, you're really stuck. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think always on Schedule 1, there isn't an alternative and you need to get on with that immediately. I, I think the question, I mean, there's a slight way around it that you could, at the first appointment of your Schedule 1 application, 
have an or, um, sort of nominal or some sort of order by consent, which can then be varied. So section eight, something three A permits you to vary an existing order. The problem, of course, is that the court process is now so slow, 12 month rule would apply. And by the time you get your final hearing, this order may be about to be defunct anyway. And therefore this umbrella, this protection from the CMS application will expire. We've got past the first stage and the CMS have said um, it's past the maximum assessment. What approach does the court then take or should we be looking at in our negotiations to calculating what charge support should be once they're over the maximum assessment? I, I think we've got a schism in the court about how it deals with things. I don't know if you might schedule one. Let's assume we are for a minute. And I think you've got the Mostinian approach. Everybody, there's a Mostinian approach on everything. We are so blessed to have him. I mean, he thinks extraordinary. Anyway, his approach is just take the cap off and go on up pretty much uh, on the cases I do anyway. But then we've also got the INRIA approach, which says, well, we need to look, this needs to be grounded in a budget. We didn't look realistically at this. The, the two approaches are inconsistent. You know, either you've got a fixed formula and you know what the answer is, in which case the parent with CARES income is irrelevant. Their situation simply doesn't matter. Or we need to dig out budgets. What do you say, Rachel, is the likely approach of the court? Well, I mean, my experience is that most district judges are following the Mostinian um, approach um, and, and high court judges as well and I think that does give rise to some difficulties there's a lot right with that approach but it needs it can't be the be all and end all Mostyn talks about it being a starting point and and my view is that there's a desperate need for some clarification about to what extent one might be able to depart from that starting point. And isn't there that there's an extra layer which is actually what level of sophistication in the formula are you applying so do we apply variations I mean you know, he's, you know, I agree. He, he says, well, well, if it's income of 650,000, well, again, not clear whether that's income of you know, 300,000 plus notional income from this non-resident parent's assets of another 350,000 on top. And if you're bringing into account, one of the, the difficulties with the, the points about which can people complain about CMS um, as it formula as it exists at the moment is that it no longer takes account of an of a parent with cares income and I or, or indeed assets any any of their resources and I think that problem becomes magnified once you get into the big money cases because I, I mean why should you attribute a notional income to a non-resident parent's resources when you are ostensibly if you follow the Mostyn approach ignoring um, because the CMS says to ignore all the parent with cares income and asset, which might be in this sort of case, a very substantial. So I think I agree, James, I think there needs to be clarification on whether you're just looking at income or whether you're looking at what you might get under a variation application and whether you're looking at pension reductions and whether you look at the scope of adjusting those pensions. And then you've got some kind of interesting semantic stuff. So the diversion is around whether the Secretary of State believes that he's unreasonably reduced. So, oh, so hang on, so we're now gonna have a High Court judge guessing what the CMS office, I mean, it's just fantastic, isn't it? I mean, that sounds complicated enough, but can you help us with uh, this? You mentioned earlier the need to try and try and future-proof your orders and the issues about them lasting for a year. So for the rest of us, what are the things that we should be looking at to try and make sure that we're in a year's time, especially when you're looking at things, for example, of big bonuses and bonuses change? Yes, we always reach out for the Christmas order. We realise that sometimes we get our wrists slapped, and certainly in front of you, if you were in front of Mostyn J, you would, because he's on record as saying they're nonsense, but I love them. It's about the cleverest thing I've ever done. So the idea is that we know that once an order's been running for a year, you can make your application to the CMS. The, the point about this is that it runs for a fraction less than a year. It expires on Christmas when the CMS isn't open anyway. And so you have a chain of just fraction less than one year orders until the child is 18. And that's the only way that I think you can authentically give power to the court. And I I accept that it's a bit of a device and we don't really like devices. But actually, if you stand back and look at the mayhem of what we've been, what we have to focus on with the CMS scheme, I would say, why not? I'd also remind us that it's not being fought out yet, I don't think, 
but I believe that every anniversary of this order is going to terminate your top-up order, because if you read the regs, it'll tell you that the only orders that aren't terminated by a CMS award are education and disability. So that means a top-up order does go. So I think it's, it's much more complex and difficult than we've thought. Query, can you rescue it with an undertaking, provided the paying parent's going to remain in jurisdiction? I've now discovered you can't rescue it with an agreement. Is that right, Rachel? Do can we um, can we have Christmas orders backed up by undertakings? Do you agree with that? Don't even need an undertaking; just a Christmas order. It's all you need. Well, what a Christmas order does is it keeps the jurisdiction with the court. Now, you may want that, or you may not want that, and there are lots of reasons why you may not. I mean, maybe I'm more of a fan of the CMS than than I thought I was, but I think I think they they achieve the purpose of making sure you're not going to ever have to. To grapple with the, the complexities of CMS, but they create other problems. On, on Christmas orders, James, I, I know there's something you've, you've advocated, you, you, you thought up in the first place and you've advocated for many years. I've never seen one made. Do you see them made, both of you? Sometimes rejected, sometimes adopted, and then sometimes complained about by people who've ended up with them. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen them made, n- never not by consent. Sure. Um, and I, I've seen the problems that they can give rise to, specifically in a case where I was representing on a Schedule 1 case, a lady who had completely run out of any money to, to deal with legal proceedings. And I felt that she was disadvantaged by being forced to push through any variation, push any variation application through the courts, as opposed to being able to go back to the CMS. What's your solution then, Rachel, if we've got um, a non-resident parent who we think is is reluctant to pay the full amount, they're in top-up territory, and what we're all scared of is we get our, our court order that, that awards a particular amount, and then we're scared a year later, they'll just knock it back to whatever the maximum CMS assessment is. What's the solution to that? Or less, of course, because by then the paying parent knows where all the bodies are and how to steer around them. One point is, is that, I mean, James, I think James is right, that I, that a top-up order actually falls away in itself after a year. I mean, I think one point to make is that, I mean, I have, I've seen non-resident parents try to take advantage of that and get extremely short shrift when effectively we go through the process again, we get the maximum assessment back and then go to court and the judge says, yes, of course, I'm going to make the same top-up order and also you're going to pay all of the costs of this palaver, which, you know, shouldn't have happened in the first place. I mean, outside of that, I think you, you, know, you have to recognise the vulnerability of the, the general child maintenance order. I mean, of course, there are other orders that can be made. There's the orders for school fees, educational expenses. I think undertakings can be used to a certain extent. I mean, I, I've not seen them tested but I, so much, but I think you can see them being used to, to pay the cost of a nanny, um, to pay for other uh, easily identifiable expenses. And that can often be something the non-resident parent is quite happy to, to deal with anyway, because they're identified and doesn't feel as if he's putting money into his partner's pocket. So I, I think creative, I think my best solution is a sort of creative use of, of undertakings, but hopefully also sort of keeping with that going hand in hand with sort of keeping the goodwill about clarity about what's going to be paid and how we will deal with any changes of circumstance if they arise in the future. Thank you very much, both of you. <clears throat> if you had one takeaway for a resolution member listening to this podcast, still feeling confused about child maintenance, what what would that be? One thing to remember and cling on to? My bit would be to dive in. There's There's not much advice around. And I think you get your head around it by doing the cases. Um, I work a lot with NAXA, who are all over the detail and are very accessible and are great people to work with. Um, and I think if we... What does that acronym stand for, James? National Association for Transport Agency. But they're, they're basically one of the advice groups and that's all they do. And I, I've got a lot of time for them. But one of my problems is that I always feel I've got a sort of keyhole into the system. You know, I do a few cases and I'm trying to imagine the whole sort of globe from that whereas actually NAX are doing the volume and they know you know how they're working on a 
you know, much broader front than me. Um, so I, th I think sort of starting to get to grips with it because yes, there's lots of detail to trip you up, but if you are at least on top of the overview, you know, the, the big pieces, I, I think you're going to run these cases much more safely. Yeah, I, I think the in terms of resources, what I would I recommend in every single case I've ever advised on is spending £45 on the Child Poverty Action Group Child Support Handbook, which is brilliant. It's updated every year, so it's a £45 every year, but it is absolutely brilliant. It answers all of these questions extremely clearly, and I think is an absolute must for anyone to, trying to, to take to, to deal with one of these cases. Well, there, our viewers can't see, but both James and Rachel are holding up their copies, which are clearly right by their hands on their desks. So, so my first piece of advice would, would be to, to get yourself a copy of the Child Support Handbook. And, and I second, it really chimes with what James is saying, is that I think it, it is important to understand how the system works to uh, and to try and reach a, a sensible agreement in the light of the provisions which um, the child support statutory scheme makes and very much allied to the pitfalls and the changes which which might come along later on down the line uh, and I think having been able to take an informed view and hopefully reach agreement at an early stage should keep your clients well away from the, the nightmarish Kafkaesque scenarios that James scared us all so much about. Thank you very much, both of you. That was absolutely fantastic, very enlightening. Thanks for having us.